Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm Preeti Ramaprasad, your host today, and we'll be talking to Ahalya Satgunaratnam about her new book published by Wesleyan University Press, Moving Bodies, Navigating Conflict, Practicing Bharatanatyam in Colombo, Sri Lanka. Ahalya Satgunaratnam is a choreographer, dancer, and dance scholar who lives and works on the unceded and traditional territories of Selwatut, Musqueam, and Squamish nations. She joined the faculty of Quest University Canada in 2014. There, she teaches courses in performing arts, women's and gender studies, and cultural studies. Her articles have appeared in Dance Research Journal, South Asian Magazine for Action and Reflection, and Options Magazine, as well as other edited collections. Her choreographic works have been performed in Sri Lanka, the United States, and Canada. Ahalya, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Preeti. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So I wonder if we could begin this interview with you saying a few words about yourself and kind of your journey um, that, would, that led you to this wonderful text. Yeah, um, thank you so much for asking me about myself. <laughs> um, my name is Ahalya. I am currently living on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples, and the colonial name is called Vancouver, British Columbia. Um, I came on this journey um, as a longtime lover and appreciator of arts and dance. Um, As someone who thinks about art critically and was fortunate to be raised in a family that really enjoyed the arts, um, visual and performing. And um, yeah, like I, I feel like I, I danced in a, in a Bharatanatyam dance company called Natya Dance Theatre based in Chicago for several years throughout high school and university. And after university, I started teaching liberatory education in an organization that was deeply invested in Paulo Freire's um, approach to education in Chicago. Um, And in that organization, which was an arts education organization, we really thought about the arts as a way for people to enter political conversations. And so we never separated arts from politics. And um, I think being deeply invested in government and in governance and and in our society and those type of power relationships brought me to this book on um, dance and war in Sri Lanka. Um, my background is as, uh, as part of the Sri Lankan Tamil diaspora. I was born in Malaysia and came to uh, Turtle Island, Canada and the US and spent my time in both of those countries. And um, when I first conceived of the book, I thought of telling the story of how uh, dancers from Sri Lanka across Um, ethnicity and religious differences were able to share this this performing arts and I was really invested in that and um, this was in 2004 but soon after that the war kind of uh, gained more traction and started kind of growing um, in conflict Um, and so the, the book really changed in that way to 
to think about um, how the circumstances of creating dance during wartime. Yeah, I that's incredible. I mean, just to think about writing a project and having you know the stakes change so greatly with uh, when when it's when we're in a time of war. And so, how did how um, how were your methods influenced by this? Um, how was urgency influencing your methods? And um, I know ethnography is a large part of your work. So can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, my, my methods were basically informed by intersectional feminism, transnational feminist work, uh, really, in, really deeply um, invested in the ways in which dance studies thinks about dance as embodied knowledge, um, really invested in post-colonial theory in thinking about uh, what is the nation and how does it uh, shape itself through these practices? Um, what is this post-colonial nation state as we, as we uh, use these terms? And, and how does it evoke nationalism? Um, in this independence era. Um, and so in terms of my own practice and the daily uh, situation of, of being in this place in 2007, 2008, 2009, seeing the, the ballooning of conflict, right? Um, it shaped me because every day there were different things to be mindful of. Um, there would sometimes be protests um, and happening on my street um, that would shape the way I would like walk in the city. Um, there would sometimes be road closures and, and things like that. And so in terms of my methodology, I just wanted to pay attention to what was happening every day and also to address um, the type of not non-conversation around around Sri Lanka, around the construction of identity uh, in the post-independence era, and I really wanted to talk to practitioners um, who may not have ever thought of their own practice as being useful, and I say that because even going to graduate school and being in South Asia studies departments, for instance, the way in which people want to look at art and create importance out of that art um, might be contradictory to how people feel about their art practice. Um, and so I, I think about how people really wanted to talk to me about aesthetics around arts practice and how I was also deeply interested in the experience of making art. Um, so that, that was kind of this, con this um, tension, constant tension that was happening too. That's really beautiful. Uh, that, and you also bring in the notion of embodiment, right? Because even in your title about like these moving bodies and you t describe like just how you would go to class um, and kind of what's, what's considered as just everyday, 
you know, practice as so significant, right? So political. Um, and I guess my question is um, how you kind of interrogate the notion of identity through Bharatanatyam, because uh, I'm, I am a practitioner of Bharatanatyam and to look at Bharatanatyam and um, in, in the context of war, right? In the context of conflict, right? And in the context of transnationalism, which is something that is only being discussed more, uh, more critically now. Um, I'm just curious about how you, how you interrogate that um, in this text and if you want to speak to that. Yeah, so... I mean, the, the story of Bharatanatyam has been written a, a lot in terms of anyone who's interested in thinking about these <laughs> yeah. classical dance forms in India. I mean, it's so well-researched. It, it, it is um, a form that has really, you know, it's, 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 it took the interests of the Orientalists, right? And so in that sense, yeah. like, there's a lot of scholarship on Bharatanatyam, on theorizing the form. The, the scholarship was what was also, I think, important to creating the form, right? And thinking about what these Orientalists thought of as worthy culture, right? So yeah. in that sense, like Bharatanatyam is really well situated and well represented in terms of dance knowledge, I would say, even in North American university settings. Right. So yeah, yeah. there's a long history of Bharatanatyam as an academic um, respected knowledge, you know, and I use all those terms kind of um, cynically. <laughs> um, but I, <laughs> yeah. I guess I guess I'm saying like there is a long history of this. And and um, at the time I was writing the book, when I when I came into this place of thinking about this project, I will say like I had family experiences, right? So first off, I'm Sri Lankan descent. And, you know, why is my family still invested in this arts practice? How do I have aunts and, you know, aunts and uncles who are all invested in this form? Um, cousins, right? So, so in that sense, um, there was a lot of knowledge and practice already in our community that was shaping this dance form. So why I, I think the, the start of the book is to understand why was that happening, right? And, and that, that, that takes place in the context of uh, post-colonialism in India, in Sri Lanka, all of these, uh, the, you know, where we see the South Asian diaspora, we're seeing also these post-colonial movements in the mid 20th century. And we're seeing the creation of national dance forms. Um, and Bharatanatyam is quite interesting because it, it started off with the promise of being like a pan-Asian dance form created to unify all of these disparate communities under the feeling of being Asian together, um, holding on to a history and heritage um, that was on, not tainted by colonialism, right? So that's the Orientalist take. Um, and, and Sri Lanka coming out of that same, like 1948, I believe, is when Sri Lanka uh, got its independence. And so it's coming out of that same era, right? That India is, right. is also, um, is also uh, emerging in. And so Bharatanatyam, the, the tenets of Bharatanatyam as like an ancient dance form that, would, that is a respectable practice. So you have, have all of these, you know, families that would never consider their young 
girls learning to dance are now saying this is a respectable dance form tied to ancient history, tied to these classical texts that are not tainted by colonialism and Western culture. We all know that the story behind Bharatanatyam is, is much more complex than that. And we, um, we know now of, of like long struggles to preserve the dance form by the Devadasi community, right? Long struggles of the Devadasi community to also represent themselves differently right. from how the, you know, the normative society uh, the dominant mm -hmm. society was was practicing, right? So, right. so I'll just I'll just state state that first as like kind of the foundation, um, the stepping stone to the text. Um, the text is looking at how these uh, young these um, this young dance form took stage in Colombo, particularly. So, um, you know, how did families find themselves learning this dance form? And how that how that history of the dance form is actually more diverse that be, than what it cur its current practice can be often understood as um, because of the creation of another oppositional dance form, Candian dance, right? So I don't know if I've answered your question, Preeti, but I'm thinking about that embodiment of, you know, here we have the shared dance practice that considers Salon at the time, you know, uh, that this is an indigenous practice of Salon, that then becomes now a Tamil dance practice. And, be, and who are Tamil people? They are in opposition to uh, the Sri Lankan government, right? Painted in this way because of how the Tamil tigers painted themselves as well, right? Um, right. So in that sense, the, the dance form... I, I say it is like a happy representative of Tamil culture. Um, it is a sense of happiness that we can preserve this dance form no matter what our circumstances, um, that we will, we will also show how much we have earned and lived through this dance form, through the Arangetrams and all of that. So, right. so, there's, so there's that type of... Um, that there's that type of engagement with the dance form. Um, I, and returning to your question about like embodiment and thinking about embodiment and war, what I really wanted to focus on were how these, there are different strategies for dancers to use dance to survive conflict, right? And by right. surviving conflict, I might be talking about economically, how do they survive mm -hmm. conflict? I might be thinking socially, you know, how do they work? Um, how do they navigate their connections to the government? How do they navigate their connections to the community through dance? Um, politically, I may think about what type of narratives they're using, what type uh, in their dance form. How are they improvising and creating something new with the dance form to address their current situation? I might be thinking about how do they fight for their representation and their employment on stage so that their dance form does not become separate from them too, right? Just like it was separated from the Devadasis. How does this dance form then become a dance form that becomes separated from people and culture? Right. So I, I think about those in, in, in the different chapters. Um, right. 
And also how it doesn't separate from you, right? And like your body and your experience. Uh, I don't know. Um, I'm just as a, as a researcher and as, as the person who kind of was propelling this project, um, uh, I kind of see that perspective in, in, in your work. Yeah, I think in the end, you know, with all of these texts, with disciplines, we're, we're talking about a slice of perspective um, that is critic, like that is thought that is um, vetted through critical engagement with other people and other texts. Um, but the way in which I um, think about this book is that it's my tale through writing um, the different conversations, through watching so many dance practices, through following traces um, in the interviews that I was able right. to hold, um, just following up on those threads that took right. place. Um, and also to real, I know I have to also accept that there are limits to, to my conversation. There are limits to the practice because of who I could have access to, right? Who I could speak to, where I could travel to. And right. those, those limits were also um, government imposed, right? So I couldn't actually leave. I couldn't actually leave Colombo at the time of, um, I wasn't supposed to leave, you know, Colombo oh. and that, per, that area to go towards the Eastern side, to go towards the Northern side during the war. Right. So right. there were, there were real, um, barriers in terms of geography and there were, um, limitations to how much people would talk because I think of, of the situation that they were living under. And I tried to remain mindful of the constraints on myself um, in understanding how difficult it is to deal with um, a nationalist, potentially fascist government. Um, right. And, and how that shapes what we say to people we don't know very well. Um, and, you know, Sharika Thernagama, who wrote a beautiful book called In My Mother's House, she's an anthropologist. Um, who is now based at Stanford. Stanford, right, right. Right, talks about how the first thing that, that evaporates during war is trust. Hmm. So when you're thinking about researching, and research is based off of trust, right? Like, it's, yeah. a, it's a real difficulty. And you have to have patience. And I also have to have patience and also, um, you know, honor the limits right, of my own work because of, of the circumstances of what's taking place. Of course. Yeah. Um, that was really uh, well put. Um, uh, I guess tangentially related to that, you discuss kind of the role of the state, right? It's almost like you, you so poignantly put um, – this notion of trust and these one-on-one -on -one relationships that you had and built. And, um, uh, I can, I can visualize it right in, in these, like, in these, like, um, descriptions in, in your text, uh, that are so, I, I felt so viscerally, but also, um, in, in how you just described building trust, but also 
almost like the exact opposite of that is this role of the state of um, this choreography of war um, and just just for the listeners to understand kind of what you mean what you mean by that um, I, I could you could you kind of speak to that that aspect of your text yeah I mean the state functions in various ways in in this story of Bardhanatyan. The state the state created a dance called Candian Dance, also using the same mechanism, I would say, employed in order to create Bardhanatyam, right? So you have like a traditional dance practice that's happening in community, serving a particular community purpose, religious entertainment, but happening under very specific conditions that are different from the capitalist conditions, capitalist liberal conditions of a proscenium stage theater, let's say. Um, Right. right? Where, you know, now it's public art, quote unquote, you know, created for public consumption um, if you have access to a ticket. Right. And public education. Yeah. yeah. And public education. And so, so you have Bardhanatyam really becoming popular. You have uh, Buddhist, Christian dancers, Hindu dancers of different ethnicities, all taking, um, taking, uh, taking hold of this form and really loving the form and also creating with it. Right. Maybe, maybe even some of that adherence around what Bardhanatyam is, might have even been developed later, right? So some of the troops that I found in those early years are creating kind of oriental, what they would call orientalist dance, in, um, in the, inspired by um, Uday Shankar. Right. Right? right. Like, like right. Yeah. you know, really moving in these ways that aren't tied to the framework of Bharatanatyam. Um, Initially, I just wanted to say. So then the state, let's say this, the state, you know, creates its own dance form that's supposed to be Buddhist in culture, Sinhala in culture, and they call it Kandian dance. Um, and in creating that new form, they're saying this is the national dance form. And Bharatanatyam is like an unofficial dance form um, that is representative of Tamil culture. And, and Sinhala culture is represented through Kandian dance, which is borrowed from a, a, a borrowed or taken from a drummer cast of performers and dancers who are doing a Buddhist ritual practice that happens at night that are now, um, now it's become a public dance form, right? Um, right. And so they've created a, a an ethnic divide already in the dance practice. Um, and so the state has a role in that. The, the second part, um, the second aspect of the state intervention is how you, you've said it, how they do it through public education. So now we have by 1973, a commitment from the state in order to maintain culture, maintain ethnic culture right? What that is, um, is to, is to create an art requirement where dance is taught. Dance is one of one component that can fulfill that requirement. And so you have in these Tamil medium schools, the practice of Bharatanatyam being taught as the dance practice of Tamil medium schools. And you have in Sinhala medium schools, 
Kandian dance offered and potentially Bharatanatyam dance offered, right? So this, the state is also saying these are the appropriate subjects to be taught in schools. Right. Um, so the state is intervening in that way. And in that intervention is setting a curriculum, is codifying a curriculum around dance, right? And so all of these different structures become the state saying, this is what is proper dance and this is what is not proper dance. These are what, this is the proper dance for a certain group of people, right? And it, and it may not be like you have to write this dogmatic. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right, right. You know, you don't have to state it explicitly, but it becomes part of that embodied discipline that we start accepting in ourselves. And I can say as a dancer, for so long, I didn't know the complicated histories of Bharatanatyam, right? Um, and even going, growing up in, in, a, in a family that was aware of caste and class differences, that, that story, the, sen- the, the resilience of that story where, you know, practitioners are literally, you know, fighting for their own practice is really not something that we talk about. Because if you recognize that people fought for their rights and they didn't get them, you might start thinking differently about what you're doing. <laughs> Right? Oh, absolutely. And I think, and I think uh, what's so timely about your text now is that I, I do think that this conversation is very um, present today. Um, uh, so I think it's come up again and again and again, and it'll keep coming up until something is done about it. Yeah, I, I have a feeling too, like Bardanatyam is definitely, it's not that old a form to come to a reckoning, really. Right. I think it's quite quick to <laughs> yeah. come, come to a reckoning. I think it's wonderful that within, you know, a hundred years of this practice, uh, you know, we can, we can start thinking, wow, what happened? How, how can we learn from this hundred year old history? That's um, a really good way of putting it. And Thank how you. can that liberate us? You know, I, I, as I talk more about the book and, and, you know, as we have more of these conversations as Bharatanatyam dancers growing up, in this era of learning dance by the Natyam in our lifetimes, we're coming also to a place where we can start saying, okay, now that I know this history, do I have to feel bound to this tradition? Or can I, or can I start questioning what my identity is and what this form is? And does that free me up or not? Um, I've been thinking a lot about that as I speak about um, these histories. Yes, incredible questions, um, and you're right. So freeing um, when you when you put it that way, because I do think when people don't know how to discuss them, uh, the instinct is to is to do the opposite. It's to not discuss them and to keep you know the status quo, and um, uh, that's just it's just making the problem worse um, of representation and and all the things associated with that. Absolutely. And I think like dancers are, are, um, there are so many dancers who are recognizing, you know, the construction of the form. And even in recognizing that construction and you're working with it, you know, that may also free you up in some ways to say, this is constructed, this is what I'm working in. Um, Instead of imposing all these uh, different types of histories and meanings. You know, the meanings can be your personal meaning, but the, the imposition of all those meanings on our bodies and on our forms is, is quite, can be limiting too for us. 
Absolutely. And what I love about your text is that it brings, um, it, 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 it brings, um, it, it, it makes relevant many of these issues which are uh, present and prevalent in, in the Bharatanatyam, in the South Asian studies field today. Um, and in, in your last chapter of your book, you even talk about um, this, uh, you, you talk about this, this uh, Shakti superstar and about power and popularity. And I think that that's also very much related um, to, to what's happening today, right? And I'm just, I'm just curious if you, could, if you could speak to that. Can you say a little bit more, um, like how this resonated with you with today? As in, like, kind of bringing, uh, kind of bringing up, like, how uh, well for me when I was reading, I was thinking about uh, the the presence of social media um, mm-hmm. and Bharatanatyam, and uh, I w- you, you were you were discussing different works of choreography, but I was just wondering how how you would place your book um, with regards to the Bharatanatyam scene today. You know, I really appreciate this question. I I think for me my hope for the book is that people can understand that uh, Bharatanatyam is a, is a really, it's a global form. Right. And, right. And to also understand the complexity of what it means to say we're from the South Asian diaspora, how diverse our experiences can be. Um, and so I say that because if Bharatanatyam is a penultimate Indian, let's say, like, and I mean Indian in the, in the sense of the country as a penultimate Indian classical dance, what does it mean to think about the diaspora, Sri Lankan diaspora and Sri Lankans also practicing the form? It's not that it's a disassociation with India, but how to understand that practice locally is really important. Um, and I guess I can tie that to today's conversation because um, Black Lives Matter, for instance, is a global movement, right? Yes. yes. Um, but, but coming, you know, having grown up, you know, spent the, like Chicago is where I, what I call home, right? It's, okay. it's where my community is based. It's where I spent most of my lifetime. Um, and now living here in what is called Vancouver, um, in 2020, I've only lived here for, um, I've completed six years here, right? So, mm-hmm. so I'm just going to say how I understood that is, you know, Black Lives Matter, quote unquote, came to Vancouver, right? It is here in Vancouver. Right. What does it mean here? It can be very different from what it means in Los Angeles, Right. So you can't just say, OK, Black Lives Matter, let's have all these rallies, which is what Vancouver did. Van- Vancouver had a series of rallies in June. Um, mind you, there were organizers prior to June, um, uh, prior to the killing of George Floyd that had been organizing here in Vancouver on, Black Li- on the Black Lives Matter platform for many, right. you know, for many years. Um, but the way in which it unrolled with the uprisings is that we had a series of Black Lives Matter protests in June, and now there's not really that many protests that are sustained, right? Like they are in Portland, like they are in Chicago, right? Um, right. So you can't just say it's the same thing, right? You can't, you like, even the defunding the police movement that has come to Vancouver came 
under different, um, different uh, organizations and political parties um, and now gain traction because of what has happened um, over the Black Lives Matter movement and the movement for Black Lives, right? It's gained traction with that association. But right. so, so I guess what I'm saying is like even that movement, you can't transpose it and put in here and say, oh, put in Vancouver and say it's the same thing because the organizing has to be contextual, right? And so yeah. that's what, that's what the heart of my book is, you know, I would hope that Bharatanatyam dancers, people who love Sri Lanka, people who are interested in South Asia and people who are interested in dance can read this to know what it is to speak about context, <laughs> to speak about, yeah. you know, the meaning of dance in a particular moment that even can shift over time. Like I speak of a dancer, an, a, a choreographer who created a dance whose composer for the dance uh, practice has a different association with the ask of composing the music than the choreographer would admit two years after the dance. Right. right? So the choreographer right. says, composer, please compose this music for this piece that I want to create about peace in Sri Lanka. And then I speak to the choreographer later on and they're like, no, I met, I had no um, drive to, to create such a piece, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, so I guess like that, that's actually the, the beautiful part about art right? That, that's like the beautiful part about returning back to choreography. That's the beautiful part about returning to, um, to art and to seeing it over and over again, right? It's not fixed. It's not fixed. Yes. Um, uh, that's really, uh, really lovely the way you put that. Um, is there any any other this this was a major takeaway I thought from your book that not only does one have to contextualize movements um, uh, that are that have been really assisted by in my opinion social media and other tools um, but also to note that um, if we're going to support one movement to be held accountable on other on the intersections of other um, fields, right? So if we're going to support Black Lives Matter, what are the other um, arenas, what are the other ways that uh, people are being marginalized and to really hold ourselves to that, particularly when being a practitioner of Bharatanatyam, right? And I, I believe that this text, um, using Kandian dance as well as uh, Bharatanatyam, kind of speaks to uh, the, those um, angles as well. Um, is, there, is there anything else um, that you feel in this text is uh, really, really important for the listeners to understand about your work. Yeah, I, I think that one of the important takeaways from my work and one thing that I really wanted to highlight, and I think that this is something that's highlighted by many, many different scholars who are doing work in Sri Lanka, is, is it's also touching on something that we spoke earlier, but this idea of being free from the constraints of identity. Um, one of the things that, you know, when I think about Sri Lanka is that the Tamil people were literally in a hard, were in that, that space between the tigers and the government. And, and that sense of freedom, right? That you have kind of like no choice because of this guilt by association. Um, so the tigers really 
they started representing the Tamil people, even if Tamils didn't identify with the tigers, right? And right. they didn't also identify with the government. Um, both had their ruthlessness <laughs> in their right. practice, right? Both had authoritarianism in their practices. Both had a sense of discrimination against the other. And we want to recognize that actually the people are very different often from their electoral governments, <laughs> elected governments. Yeah, right? absolutely. Um, and, you know, I, I wanted to bring that tale of, you know, some people don't really choose to adhere to Bharatanatyam. There, is a, there are limitations that are being imposed on that choice, on that sense of choosing. Um, there are repercussions for not choosing it. There, you know, so I want to build that complexity when we think about the practices that we, that we are doing, that sometimes we may, we may be confronted, we may confront constraints um, on our livelihood if we choose not to do the form in this particular way. We may, um, we, you know, we, we are faced with this either or situation, which is so imperfect. And I think right now, if anything, <laughs> that, that speaks to what's happening um, in the U.S. currently in 2020. Like, how many, how many people feel disenfranchised by their choices, the quote-unquote choices that they have, right? Yeah, um, right. And, and, and I also feel like uh, it wasn't until I started living in the U.S. that I realized how complex uh, U.S. politics is, right? You have, like, United States becoming the... Uh, the, the kind of Captain America, um, you know, <laughs> thinking of itself that it can bring democracy to the world no matter, you know, how ruthlessly it will bring democracy, right? Um, it has this history of doing this across the world and in various parts, South America, in the Middle East, right? In Asia Pacific, right? It thinks of itself this way. Um, right. And then you realize, oh, wow, there are groups of people that have been struggling against the state forever, <laughs> right? And so, right. and you realize that they've been struggling against the state and the state actually doesn't represent them. Actually, right. the state may kill them. Right. Um, and so I guess that's like, that is the undercurrent of, you know, why I, I want to write this book, why I wrote this book, why I think about dance, why I think about scholarship is to really show that critical perspective where, you know, where we're framed with choices. Sometimes we really don't have much choice. Um, and we, you know, in terms of Sri Lanka, it's usually painted as this either or tiger's government situation. Um, but there are many people who are in between, who are not in those spaces and don't have a body, don't have a place to go to voice that, in betweenness, that ambivalence. Right. Um, I the 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 fact that you brought guilt, the notion of guilt into that is so significant, and and kind of shedding that. Uh, you quote Homi Baba in your work. Is that right? Um, yes. And I, I was recently listening to him speak, and he actually said was speaking to these times, and he said, you know, I'm very skeptical of when people admit to their guilt these days. Um, uh, that that I'm I'm not someone that will sudden that will just um, you know without thinking 
um, just admit to my guilt. Like I, there, there, there is like, there is like history. There is like, there is like a lot more built into this. Um, and, and it, what you said just kind of reminded me of that. And so, um, I think it's very powerful, um, to, to tell these stories of, um, not being represented. Um, well, I think that this text is is really important for everybody. Like you said, people who are interested in South Asian studies, performing arts, um, both, neither, um, all these fields to re to read your work. Um, it's it's an honor and a pleasure to talk to you um, about your work, and and I, I thank you so much. Um, what's what's next for you? Is there another project that you're that you're thinking about uh, working on, or in terms of writing, I am, you know, I, I'm, I'm writing about uh, my own experiences teaching in my university and thinking about the histories around uh, universities in, and universities and actually land development in Canada. Um, so I'm, I'm going down that path right now. Um, other things that are on my horizon is that I'm, I'm, I was, I'm on sabbatical this year, but, uh, my sabbatical plans have really changed. Uh, I'm not able to travel. I was supposed to actually do some teaching in South Asia, um, this coming year, but, uh, I've been called forth in a different way to teach and I'm leading the programming for, uh, intergenerational coalition building organization in British Columbia called the Impact Coalition and doing anti-oppression uh, education work with uh, people across the province. So I'm, I'm actually really excited about that. And I'm really excited to write um, in order for us to think about the land that we're on and for us to think about what it means to have development projects across the world. Um, I think that also feeds into my book. I talk about development a bit. And um, yeah, so I'm just continuing with that, to be honest. <laughs> I don't have a, a clear second book project just yet. And yeah, that, that sounds like amazing work and um, can't wait to see some of it. And thank you so much again for your time. And uh, that's it. Thanks. Thank you so much, Preeti.